we were we were literally driving from uh, my graduation in Portland during Mother's Day service last weekend. So that's why we weren't here with you last Sunday. Um, and uh, But today, and actually the Sunday before that, Pastor Mark brought a sermon. And so I haven't preached in like three weeks. So, man, I got a ton to say. You guys ready for dinner later? Uh, I'll try to get you to that. But um, actually what I, what I want to do with you today is continue a series that we had started a few weeks ago called The Invitation. And I really just have, a, I think, a simple message today to share with you. Um, if you could turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. And then also, maybe you want to keep a, a finger there, um, also turn in your Bible to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to look at two places, Matthew 28 and Mark uh, 16. Here's a little rule of thumb. If you want to know where I'm going, uh, turn to, so it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So to get to Matthew 28, go to the next book over. So if you've gone to Luke, just, just, just go, if you go left and you'll find Mark, the last chapter of Mark, that's where I want you to get to. Okay, so, and, and then just find Mark, and then just turn left a little bit, and you'll find the last chapter of Matthew. They go in order. It's brilliant how, how it works out like that. Um, today, I want to talk to you about, as, as we continue this series that we've been talking about called The Invitation, we've been talking about these invitations that Jesus gives us, that we can actually see him directly giving to people between his resurrection and the day we know as Pentecost Sunday. We're going to celebrate Pentecost uh, in just a few weeks, and we're very excited about that. But we wanted to stop and look at the way Jesus invites people into kingdom living in between the resurrection and Pentecost. So today, uh, my goal is actually to familiarize yourself with this invitation that actually serves as the final command that Jesus gives to his disciples before he ascends to sit at the right hand of the Father, which is where he is now, praying for us. And I want us to consider what it might look like if we were to respond to the invitation that is within this final command. Now, uh, this final command is something that you might be familiar with its title. It's commonly called and it's com commonly called the Great Commission. And in fact, if you're looking in your Bible at either Matthew 28 verse 16 through 20, or if you're looking at your Bible at Mark 16 verses 14 through 18, you probably will see a heading there called that's that calls this section of your Bible the Great Commission. Just for uh, the the Bible nerds out there like me, and if you're interested in this, the words the Great Commission aren't actually in the biblical text. They were added later as headings so that when we're talking about that final command that Jesus gave to his disciples for all of the things that he wants us to do after he ascended to heaven, we didn't have to call it all of that. We could just call it the Great Commission. This is a lot less rambly that way, right? And so we named it, we gave it kind of this nickname of the Great Commission. But I'd like for us to uh, to take a look at this passage, and it's important for us to study it because, in, in fact, this is really, really important for us to study this. I recently found out that in 2018, there was a Barna group study that came out that said that 51% of Christians in the United States, when asked, what is the Great Commission, 51% of us did not know the answer to that question. 51%. 6% said that they were not sure if they had heard it before. 51% said never even heard that term. That term is not familiar. 25% of U.S. Christians said that the term sounded familiar, but I can't really tell you what it is. 
And then only 17% of U.S. Christians in 2018 not only knew the term, but could actually describe what it meant. 17% of Christians in the United States. So there's like an 83% chance that you're unfamiliar with the Great Commission. I, I mean, I'm, my assumption, my my assumption actually is the people that come to Life Church are among the 17%. So if that's you, if if you're super familiar with the Great Commission today, and you go, why do I need to hear this sermon? Maybe we need to hear the sermon because 83% of other Christians in America don't know it. And so it'd be really important for us to refresh so we can go share it. And if you're among the 83%, I just want to say that's probably not your fault. It's probably not your fault. But now it's going to be your responsibility. Welcome to the kingdom of heaven. So we're going to talk about the Great Commission today. So Matthew chapter 28 is the first place that we see the Great Commission in the Gospels. And I just want to read this to you, uh, starting in verse 16. So it says in verse 16, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they saw Jesus, they worshiped, but some doubted. Now, this is not the point of my sermon today, but that phrase, some doubted, jumped out at me when I was preparing for this sermon. Isn't it interesting that the Great Commission was given in the context of faithful worshipers and doubters? And Jesus didn't say, Okay, raise your hand if you've got doubts. And they all went, I guess it's me. And and he he didn't go, get out! I've got something to say to the faithful believers who have no doubts. That's really interesting to me. Not the point of my sermon, but if you're wrestling with doubts today, that doesn't mean the Great Commission isn't also still a gift for you. That's really profoundly interesting. Anyway, verse 18 says, Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then if we were to flip in our Bibles to Mark chapter 16, this is the next place where we would commonly see what's called the Great Commission. And starting in verse 14, it says, Later he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who saw him after he had risen again. In the context of a lack of full belief, Jesus shows up and he says to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Again, Just recognize first and foremost that Jesus is not giving the Great Commission to those who have it all together and have all the answers to all the questions that they've ever had about faith. He's giving this commission, and in Mark's gospel and in Matthew's gospel, we really see that he seems to have done this on two occasions, giving these final commands to people who are wrestling with doubt. And he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And uh, side note, you don't condemn them. They choose condemnation because they didn't believe. That's, That's their choice. Verse 17, Jesus continues, he says, And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. 
They will pick up snakes if they should drink anything deadly. It will not harm them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will get well. Now, what, I, what I'm going to attempt to do for you today is to combine these two uh, tellings of the commission and share with you three parts to, uh, that we want to emphasize. The first thing that we want to emphasize is the commission. I think that there's a promise in here uh, or several promises. We want to emphasize the promise. And then I think that there are some first steps that we can see in this great commission as well. Because remember, we're talking about this in the context of this being an invitation for us, as it is also an invitation that we extend to other people. So we're going to talk about the commission, the promise, and our first steps. So let's take a look first and foremost at the commission itself. The commission really says you could probably say the, wrap the commission up in two things. Jesus says to go with good news. And then the second thing he says is what do you do with the good news? Then you make disciples who you baptize and teach. You teach them to be disciples. We'll talk about that word disciples a little bit later. So Jesus tells us to go with good news. I had mentioned a minute ago I was at a graduation yesterday. I was at the graduation for Life Pacific University where I do some adjunct teaching, and they just had their graduation for their bachelor's and master's degree students. And uh, so I got to wear my funny hat and my dress in public, and, um, and it was the first time that I got to wear it to celebrate somebody else. It was really awesome. Um, and, and, and it was interesting, though, that one of the speakers stood up and said, did you know why we call this a commencement? Uh, it's not a graduation service, it's a graduation commencement. And it's interesting because they were saying that the word commencement is actually, in its definition, means beginning or start. And they were drawing attention to the interesting idea that at the end of a thing, your college career, we're celebrating a commencement, a beginning. At the end of Jesus' ministry, he actually called for a beginning of something. And so you could actually call this, we call it the Great Commission, you could actually call it the Great Commencement. It's the great beginning. It's the start of a new thing. And the new thing that he is calling for is that you would go. It, which, is, which is distinctly different than anything Jesus had said over the last few years. Remember, we talked about this recently. Pastor Mark did a great job a couple Sundays ago talking about uh, the restoration of Peter. Well, the journey of Peter with Jesus... Ends, it, it ends in this you know, restoration that kind of launches him into ministry. But the very first time they had an encounter, Jesus said, follow me. I want you to follow me. Now Jesus is saying, I want you to go. Now certainly we continue to follow Jesus as we go. But Jesus is saying, go, because I'm not going to be physically present with you. So I want you not to just sit around and twiddle your thumbs until I come back. I want you to do something. And that something is I want you to go. I am beginning something brand new. The command is an invitation to go, just like Jesus went from heaven to earth. Right? This is the John 3.16 idea. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus had to go from heaven to earth. And now our job is to go with heaven into earth so that others can come to Jesus like you also once came to Jesus. This, this is what we are called to do, to go. So disciples of Jesus are called to go into all the world. 
which for the record might mean that some people who are members of this church, maybe some people listening to me say these words right now, are called to go to a different country. We would call you a missionary. But really, if we understand this great commencement or great commission, we should just call you a Christian. Right? And then we shouldn't just call you, if you're not called to go, we shouldn't just call you a Christian. We should call you a missionary. Because the truth is, whether you go around the world or across the street, you are called to go. Because you came. Because Jesus came. And he said, go. And he said, go to you. And he said, go to you and to me and to all of us. Wherever it is that we are going, we're called to go. So Jesus telling us to go, if it's about around the world and across the street, if it's about whether or not you're here or somewhere else in your going, Jesus' call to go should be interpreted as you living in relationship with Jesus wherever you happen to go, being about the purpose of Jesus where you are. In fact, one of our core values is that we are living on purpose. It means that Jesus has a great purpose for everybody in the kingdom. That purpose is really what we're talking about today, that everyone would come into the kingdom of heaven. And how does he do that? He sends us to go and share the good news with people, right? We're supposed to go with the good news. But there's also an intentionality about your everyday life. And in your everyday life, you should be about the business of going with Jesus, representing Jesus with the good news. Because that's the other thing about this going is that we're going with the good news. Please make it sound good. I was talking to some young people about the the Ephesians 4 apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher gifts that Jesus, uh, that Paul says that Jesus gave to the church. And we're talking about the, the evangelist and how that's greatly misunderstood. A lot of times we kind of think about the evangelist like he's the car, he or she is the car salesman of the kingdom of heaven. And we're kind of, man, they're kind of annoying people. They just won't shut up about Jesus all the time. It would be great if we would welcome these people back into the church. Because the evangelist is the one that actually makes it possible for us to hear the good news and it sounds good. It's it sounds good. Have you ever heard, if it was me, I'm sorry, but have you ever heard anybody tell you about Jesus and it didn't sound good? I don't know that I want, I don't know that, I want that. That sounds bad. Let's draw a line here. I'm not saying it's easy. If it sounds hard and you interpret hard as bad, that's a you problem. It is always good. Right? So when you go, please know how to make the gospel sound good. And if you can't, I propose to you that you should start by spending some time thinking about how terrible you were at being perfect. And that Jesus extended his love and grace and presence to me? Oh my goodness, that makes me really, really thankful for the good news. That is good news. I didn't deserve the presence of God at all, and he gave it to me anyway. That is good news. And then when you go, just tell somebody about that. That's what it sounds like, right? Jesus made his purpose clear throughout his entire ministry that we would go. 
And he says it in all kinds of ways. One of the things that he says, by the way, uh, about this going of, of us and his going of, for himself from heaven to earth was when he told us exactly why he came was an invitation. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I'm going to give you something in return. What I'm going to give you is called rest. In fact, Matthew actually records that exact sentiment in, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all of you who are weary. Our going should be going to those who are weary and saying, Jesus has something good for you. It's rest. For all of, all of the striving, our, our going should even be going to our, our, our fellow Christians who are wrapped up in religious tradition and becoming Pharisees and everything's bogged down with all the hard work that we have to do to perform for Jesus. And we should say, I have good news for you too. It's that you get to rest because Jesus has come. So we go so they can come to Jesus and find rest. The purpose of, of, of Jesus should remind us that we're to go with good news. The second thing here that Jesus says as we go is he says, go and make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded, everything that I've taught, everything that I've ever said. So in other words, he's saying, help people believe in Jesus, baptize them, and then help them to learn to observe what Jesus taught. And I would just propose to you that this command is actually unique among all of the other commands that Jesus has ever said. In three years, he's never said this. And the reason that we say that is, number one, because it's the last thing that he said. One of the things he said before he ascended had to be the last one. And if you've ever heard somebody record somebody's last words before they died, we add special weight to those words, right? Now, Jesus happened to have last words before he died. Those have special weight. And then these are like his last words 2.0. There's going to be 3.0 later. Read Revelation. But uh, the, the last words 2.0 are the last words before he ascended to, the, to heaven. And So I'm not saying that these words are the most important things that Jesus has ever said. The most important words that Jesus has ever said is every word he's ever said. But we should ascribe significance to these words. Why? Jesus could have said anything before he ascended. If he was really, really interested in us having community together all the time by playing board games, he would have said, hey, there's this great game. It's called Catan. Play it with all your friends all the time. Uh, the Rondos and the Saltzmans have really leaned into that ministry. If anybody's interested in community, go play Catan with the Rondos and the Saltzmans. Be prepared. They're very competitive. Okay, maybe not. You might lose a friendship if you go and play Catan with Danny. Uh, <laughs> but do you understand the point that I'm making? He could have said, and I would have affirmed this, he, he could have said, uh, hey, drink a cup of coffee in my name every day. We say thank you, Jesus, for that. But Jesus didn't say that as his final words before ascending to the Father because that's not the thing he wanted us to emphasize. So what did he say? Go with the good news. Make disciples. Remind them of everything that I've ever said. Make sure they get baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These are important words simply because they're the last thing he said in this significant moment. And then secondly, I think that we could see that these are unique 
this is a unique command among all of the things that Jesus has ever said because it cannot be fulfilled unless you understand everything else that he has ever said. There's something distinct about the ministry of Jesus. He spent a lot of time talking about the Old Testament. Which, by the way, just as a side note, if you ever hear anybody devaluing the Old Testament because we have the New Testament, they don't actually understand the New Testament. You cannot, you cannot appreciate the fullness of all of the things that Jesus said unless you understand the New Testament. You can't even understand fully the cross unless you understand the New Testament or the Old Testament and the New Testament. Just all of it. <laughs> Guys, I haven't preached in three weeks. Give me a break. <laughs> Jesus spent a lot of his time talking about the Old Testament. In fact, he has this whole thing, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. He sits down and he goes, there is a ton of stuff that you got wrong. Let me correct your thinking on X, Y, Z. Loop back around A, B, C. I mean, he spends a long time just correcting their thinking about the Old Testament teaching. He does that a lot. And the other thing that Jesus did, interestingly, as much as he points back to reframe their understanding of the Old Testament, is he also points forward to this new thing that was going to come. And and so he spent three years looking back and correcting and pointing forward and, and, and preparing to commission. And now in his commissioning, in his commencement service before ascending to the right hand of the Father and saying, go to us in that moment, here is what he's saying, something new. And, the, and it's something new only because he says, remember all the stuff I've ever said to you? This is the only time he says that. Remember everything I've ever taught you. And so what's he talking about? You remember all those times I looked back to the Old Testament and corrected your thinking? Remember that. You remember all those times I told you about what it would be like to live in the kingdom of heaven that's present now and not yet, but now? Remember that. I propose to you that you cannot even begin to fulfill the Great Commission unless you know Scripture. So to fulfill the Great Commission is to be a student of the Word. This cannot be understood as anything other than a callback to everything Jesus has ever said. He specifically says then, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. By the way, observe is an action word. It doesn't say teaching them to understand everything that I've ever taught you. Teaching them to observe So everything about this command requires that you know what Jesus has already said. This is not a standalone, isolated command. It's a command that stands on the shoulders of everything Jesus has told us already. So with his final words, he says, move forward. But remember, bring all of this with you and make other people to understand and observe what I've said. Now, okay, in my experience, most sermons that I have heard about the Great Commission end somewhere around here, right? We, we kind of, a lot of times, actually, I've heard some Great Commission sermons that have been phenomenal, and they've kind of led up to a call for, like, let's partner with global missions. And part of the challenge is that in that is that it accidentally communicates that the Great Commission is for people who go to the other side of the planet, and uh, if you're just going across the street, that that's not good enough, and we just want to unravel that. Right? So we're not going to actually end this sermon here. 
We have to make sure that we go, yes, go across the street, around the world. If you need help going across the street and around the world, that's what this community is about. We want to help you become the kind of person who can go across the street and around the world. We want you to study God's word all the time so that you know what he said, you know what he's saying to the church now and telling us to do so that you can move forward. We want you to go change the world. And that starts, I think, probably with God changing the world inside of your own heart. And then you go and change the world around you. But, but there's a problem with ending this message here because this isn't where Jesus ended. See, Jesus actually gives this commission, go with the good news, make disciples, do all this amazing stuff. Yes, go do that. But then he says, oh, and there's a promise. And the promise in Matthew 28 is he says, don't worry, I'm going to be with you. And then the, the promise in, in, in Mark 16 is the wild one. He goes, these are the signs that are going to follow you. You're going to raise the dead. You'll pick up snakes. We'll talk about that in a minute. If you drink poison, it won't harm you. And you'll lay hands on the sick and they will be healed. He gives promises. I want you to understand that this isn't actually a part of the commencement, commissioning, go, the job description. This is a promise that as you go, this is what you can look out for. Right? There's a twofold nature. I will be with you and you will see miracles. Now, why would Jesus give this kind of promise after his commissioning? I think it's probably because he knew that we would need to hear it. I think it's probably because he, he knew into the future that we would have professionalized Christianity so much. That we would have made it feel and look like if you want to be a real Christian, you have to be a pastor. And, and then the rest of us is just about sitting and listening to the pastor. And, that, and that's what Christianity is about now. It's about TED Talks. And if you give a really good TED Talk, you get paid for it. And if you can listen to a really good TED Talk, there's a Bible college you might go to and you learn how to give a really good TED Talk. If you're real serious about TED Talks. And Jesus said, I didn't come for TED Talks. We shouldn't have professionalized it as much as we have. Because the problem is, we, say, we hear Jesus say, go, and our brains look at church culture and say, okay, I'm not going to go to the missions field, and I don't want to preach on Sundays. I guess the Great Commission is not for me then. And some of us actually really love the idea that maybe the Great Commission isn't for us. Whew, dodged a bullet there. And some of us are racked with shame and embarrassment because something tells us, and something even in our church communities and structures and cultures in the Western, uh, predominantly white evangelical church has, has created this, this culture that says, if you're not able to stand on the stage because somebody affirms that you can stand on a stage, if you're not talented enough, or if you're not Christian enough, well, then this Great Commission, I mean, it'd be great if you, were, if you would grow up and be eligible to fulfill the Great Commission. But how did we start? Who was in the room? The doubters. The unbelievers were in the room. Jesus shows up to the unbelievers and the doubters. And he says, this commencement is for you as well. And so I'm going to tell you what I want you to do. I want you to go with good news. Make disciples. 
But because I know you're going to need to hear it, I'm going to say go. And when you feel inadequate, look at me and remember that I've never left you. And when you feel like words aren't enough, look to me and through you I will demonstrate the power of eternal life through signs and wonders. This is reminiscent of, of, of a time where Jesus was sending out some of his disciples, and, and they were kind of not so sure that they were eligible to be sent out. And Jesus, in Matthew chapter 10, verses 7 through 8, says, As you go, proclaim, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received and freely give. It's interesting, one of the times when Jesus' disciples come back to him after doing the ministry work, the missions work that he sends them off to, they come back with this report. Jesus, oh my goodness, the thing that you told us to do about raising the dead and healing the sick, it totally worked. Oh my goodness, we were casting out demons in your name. It was so cool. Aren't we amazing? And Jesus goes, chill, bro. It's my paraphrase. If I ever write a version of the Bible, Jesus is going to go, chill, bro. I probably shouldn't write a version of the Bible. But he says this, more more importantly than wanting to calm them down, he says, you know what you actually should celebrate? That your name will be found in the Lamb's book of life. Do you see this? That in our wanting to pump ourselves up because we've become super Christians, or or in our feeling like we are disqualified because we're not good enough at being Christians, Jesus says, you know what actually matters is that I wrote your name down. Is that I know you. You're eligible. You're worthy. You have what it takes. If you know Jesus, you've got everything that you need to go with the good news because Jesus is the good news. All you need to know is Jesus, and then all you need to have is a desire to share Jesus, and you're eligible. And I would also say you're responsible, and you're empowered, and Jesus wants to do good works in and through your life. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't just say, you'll see good works. You'll see miracles. He says, you'll, you'll, you'll see them. What he's saying is, you'll do them. It'll happen through your ministry, through your life. It's almost as if he's saying, as you're being sent, give away something that you've already received. When you see death and sickness, well, you've been given the name above every other name. The, the name that was resurrected the name that overcomes sickness, declare, give away, go, give the good news of Jesus, the one who overcomes everything. Amen? There's something supernatural about that, right? It's not just a good story. It's a name of a person who conquered death. It's not just a name of a person who conquered death. It's the person himself present with you because he promised I'll be with you always even to the end of the age and that's how you can have confidence that the signs and the wonders will happen because it's not you being a super Christian that does miracles it's Jesus doing what he said he would do doing what he said he came for Remember in John chapter 10, verse 10, we've talked about this verse a lot at Life Church. Jesus tells us why he came. He says, I have come that they, they being everybody, everywhere, always, that they might have life overflowing. This is why Jesus says, when you go in my name to make disciples and baptize them and, and teach them to observe everything that I've taught, this is why he says the natural outcropping of that, the natural fruit of that is 
signs and wonders, is miracles. Things that can only be possible by the hand and the work of God in and through your life. Because you got there because of the supernatural work of Jesus giving you life. And the result should be that you have so much life that it overflows. That it overflows. I would just propose to a church that has gone through a great deal of pain over the last couple of years that if we are not seeing miracles in and through our church, it is not because God has changed his mind. I propose that it is because we have been running for so long that our cup is running dry. Marcus, this morning during our pre-service prayer, he called us to daily prayer. He reminded us of Paul when he was in prison and at the midnight hour was praying and worshiping, but that what was actually happening outside of the prison was that there were a bunch of believers who got together and they had been praying. And it says in scripture that they had not stopped praying since the moment Paul had been arrested. And it was their prayer. It was their prayer that broke the chains. That's profound. This is how we receive the life that fills us up to overflowing. And the reason that we don't overflow into others, and I think a lot of the reason why we don't see a lot of signs and wonders, even in our Pentecostal church, we're a part of a heritage of four-square churches that has seen signs and wonders that was birthed on a movement of miraculous physical healing. I think a lot of the reason why we have seen a diminishment of that is because we are so weary just trying to survive ourselves that we're not even sure we have enough to live, let alone to give. And do you want to know how you fill your cup? You pray. You get so filled with Jesus that it naturally overflows. Naturally. So we're commissioned to go with good news. Please make it be good. And as we go, Jesus promises to be with us, to empower us, to be free and to set other people free, to be people of freedom who deliver people into freedom. But before we go with the promise, there's, there's one thing. We need to take our step. This is our third and final point of the day is that there is a first step for us. See, Jesus gave this commissioning or this commencement for us to make and go, to, to go and make disciples. So it, it should go without saying, right, that if you're going to go and make disciples, that you should be one. And this is problematic because of the way that we have interpreted what it means to be a disciple. The classic modern American, Western, predominantly white evangelical, sorry for all the disclaimers, I just want to make sure you know who I'm talking about. It's us. Um, the, the, the classic modern way that we refer to disciple-making disciple is bring a person to a Sunday church service, that's this moment, and then the preacher's job, if they do their job, will be to do what's called an altar call. By the way, I'm not poo-pooing altar calls. They have their place. Um, but we've limited how to become a Christian by going to church on Sunday, and then someone will lead you in what's called the sinner's prayer, which is not a thing that's in the Bible. Um, I'm not saying that it's bad. It's just not in the Bible. <laughs> And then if you can get a person to raise their hand, 
I mean, they become a super Christian if you can get them to come to the front. And then, and then they pray a prayer. And, oh, and that's it. Period. You now get to not go to hell. Man, I'm just so tired of pretending like that's the kingdom. <laughs> it's just, I can't, I can't preach that sermon again. I, everything about my upbringing was just get them to raise their hand in church. If you can get them to raise their hand in church, you're a good pastor. If you can make people feel like if they don't raise their hand right now, they're going to walk out of here, get hit by a car, and die, and go straight to hell. If you can get them to feel like that so they're scared enough to raise their hand in church, and then, if, and then they can go outside and get hit by a car and die and go to heaven. Ha-ha! Mission accomplished. And it's like we, we care about your life only so much. Can I stand over here for a second to make a social commentary moment? It would be really good if the American church would care about every single part of a person's life. We're making a big, huge, appropriate, huge, appropriate stink about one phase of the human life in our American culture right now, good, let's keep doing that. Yes, but let's care about every stage of every person's life. And as disciple makers, it's not just about did you raise your hand, it's about are you walking it out? And it's not my job to be a Christian for you. And it's not your job to be a good Christian for your kids. It's my job to show you what the Word says about what it means to be a Christian, and it's your job to do that for your children. And then to plead with them. Paul calls this the ministry of reconciliation. Pleading with people that they would choose to be reconciled to Christ. Pleading with our church members. Pleading with our children. Pleading with our neighbors. Please, this isn't just about putting your hand up in the air on a Sunday. This is about whether or not you meant it on a Sunday. And I'll know that you did because you would live it on a Thursday. James wrote a whole book about that. Saying, teaching us that if, if, your, if your declaration of faith doesn't do something in your life, he would say, your, your faith without the works showing that your life has changed is dead faith. It's meaningless. And we've raised an entire generation of people who call themselves Christians. And 51% of us don't even know what the Great Commission is. I was sharing with some leaders in our church recently, uh, another Barna study that came out just in January of this year said that 5% of American Christians are actively discipling somebody, but not themselves being discipled. Just for the record, those are probably all pastors. 5% of American Christians are actively discipling someone and not being discipled. 28% of American Christians are being discipled, but not discipling anybody. We'd call those people regular church attenders on a Sunday. Another 28% are in what Barna calls active discipleship community. And they define that term, active discipleship community. They say 28% of American Christians are being discipled and also discipling someone else. At Life Church, we call those people disciple making disciple makers. In the Bible, we call those people disciples. I'm actually hesitant to just use the word Christian anymore because it means almost nothing. 
Jesus called us to be disciples and to make disciples. The question of our first step isn't just do you know what a disciple is, which is a student, not just a church attender. A committed follower, a zealous, committed follower, submitted in every single area and moment of your life, dare I say even baptized or immersed in the presence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in every moment of your life. It's not just enough that you know that. The question of our step, the invitation of the great commencement into the kingdom of heaven is, are you making disciples? I used to feel bad about saying stuff like this, but if you're not actively figuring out how to make disciples, if your life doesn't point other people closer to Jesus, then I wonder how seriously you have taken your own salvation. And I say that as a man who has been pastoring a church for 11 years as of last Sunday. And I'm aware that we have a discipleship problem. And as a pastor, I would, I would want you to know that I take responsibility for the ways that we have not done a great job of making disciples in this church. And I can say that that's true because when a pandemic hit, I knew who was discipling our church because they started telling me what they heard on Facebook. They started telling me what they heard on Fox News or CNN, depending on what side of the aisle of an argument they were on. We have been discipled. We are all being discipled. We know who we're being discipled by, by answering this question. Who do you act like when life gets hard? Two years ago and over the last two years, we as American Christians have not been acting like the person we say we are disciples of. And as a pastor of a church, I want you to know I have gone to Jesus on so many days in repentance for the ways that we have run church services and failed at making disciples who were stronger than the discipleship of the news and the social media. God forgive us. If you need someone to blame that for the last decade of your life you've been coming to church and you haven't been a disciple of Jesus, I, I will gladly take that on my shoulders and I would repent before you. But I cannot take responsibility for your next steps. You, you have been called a son or a daughter of the Most High God. You have been called to be a disciple. And therefore, you also have been called to take on the responsibility of being a disciple maker. And you know what the promise is? Jesus will be with you every day. You feel like you're far from Jesus? Go make a disciple. You will never lean on Jesus more than when you're looking at another human being and telling them something that you're aware their eternity is banking on. You, you will never be more in desperation for the need of the presence of Jesus. And he says, hey, don't be afraid. I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. Sometimes I feel like we're in the end of the age, and Jesus is still with us. And the promise is, oh, you feel like you saying the words isn't good enough to convince this person of God's radical, insane, crazy love for them? Well, miracles are possible. What could Jesus do to demonstrate his love through your life for other people? 
Let us become a church of the great commencement, of the great beginning, of the great calling, of the great commission. Let us become disciples. And so the question is for you. Are you one? Would you pray with me? Jesus, we so desperately need you. Jesus, we live in a world where what it means to be a Christian has been piled upon in so many convoluted ways. And while we do understand that there are a lot of things in our world that require nuance and looking at things from many angles, there is only one way. There is only one God. There is only one name under heaven by which we must be saved and that name is Jesus. So while we recognize nuance, we stand on the solid rock of the one name and we say we need you. If you're sitting in this place right now and you're realizing is through this message, which has in some moments I am certain been difficult to listen to, And you are feeling a sense of, oh my goodness, I raised a hand, but I don't know if it really actually changed my life. Then I want to invite you now not to raise a hand, not to show me anything, but to make a commitment. If you need help in your journey, we want to be a part. We, we want to know where you're at in your journey so that we can journey with you. You owe us no hands raised. You owe Jesus everything. So now in this moment, would you make any commitments that you need to make to Jesus? Maybe it sounds something like, Jesus, I've been living off of a hand that I raised and not allowing you actually to be the king of my life. Maybe you would say, I, I didn't even know what it meant to be a disciple until this moment, that it's something more than just attending church on a Sunday. And God, I, I need you to be present with me so that I can become this thing that I now realize I have to be. It might even be that you would say, Jesus, I don't think I want to do this. I have doubts. I have unbelief. And I would just invite you to say to Jesus, you walked into the room when those other doubters were there and you gave a commissioning and you gave life and you gave love and purpose. Jesus, in the middle of my doubts, would, would you come and say something to me today? My friends, for whatever place my voice has meaning in your life, I charge you in the name of Jesus to be disciples and to be disciple makers. Don't compare your disciple making as if this is some kind of competition. I charge you with all humility to embrace the obscurity of disciple making 
that changes one life at a time, one conversation at a time, one hug at a time, one prophetic word at a time, one miracle at a time in the context of relationship. I charge you to be disciples who make disciples. And then I would bless you in your coming and in your going. May you be found in Jesus. And in your being a neighbor, a family member, and a friend, may you be filled and overflowing with good news. Amen.